When you look up the definition of masculinity, you get a short, simple description. Possession of the qualities traditionally associated with men. But what does that really mean? Author and journalist Thomas Page McBee works to answer that question in his new book, Amateur, a true story about what makes a man. The book follows McBee, a trans man, as he trains to fight in a charity boxing match at Madison Square Garden while struggling to untangle the relationship between masculinity and violence. Through his boxing training, McBee examines the weight of male violence, the pervasiveness of gender stereotypes, and the limitations of conventional manhood. Hi, I'm George Boraki, and this is Cityscape. McBee is our guest on this week's show. Thomas, thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. So finish this sentence. A man is... Oh, wow. That's the opening question? That's the opening question. <laughs> I mean, I wrote a whole book to try to finish that sentence. So yeah. I think, I don't know if I can finish it in a sentence, but I think, um, I think I would finish the sentence by asking that as a question back to you. Uh, what is a man? You know, because I think the answer is as, as, as broad as there are male bodies in the, in the world, you know, and that's part of what I think, I think men, um, no matter, you know, how you come into being a man, the biggest lie about masculinity is that it's something that, um, that is uh, fixed and it's something that can be easily answered in a simple way like that. And I think that's part of why, you know, we struggle so much to try to, uh, to fit in and to, to be the kind of men we're supposed to be. And, um, and a lot of why I wrote this book was to try to figure out how, how to get, how to find a different answer than a simple one. Yeah. So is it fair to say that despite all of this work that you did, this deep dive, this hard look into masculinity, that it's still sort of hard to define in a sentence? Yeah. Or at least like, I think that it's not so much that it's hard to define as that it's, that there's not one definition, you know? And I think that's something that's really hard maybe for us to to understand, or at least I find it sometimes hard to like hold. And I think there's a lot of pressure to, um, you know, if you look up masculinity in the dictionary, which, uh, my friend, Ann Friedman, the journalist, uh, did recently ahead of a conversation I had with her and the answer of like, what is masculinity is just like traits that men have. Uh, so, you know, I think that obviously there's something abstract and broad about it, but there's also this, um, urgent need often to define what exactly being a man means, but being a man ideally and enlarging what masculinity means, means anything a man does is what masculinity is. And I think that actually, if we could, we could really start defining it that way, we might solve a lot of our larger, larger social ills around toxic masculinity. You say in the book that growing up, you had little empathy for men. Yeah. Why is that? Um, because, so I'm, I'm trans and I grew up, um, so I grew up being socialized like most female-born people are with a fear of men uh, and having to move through the world, you know, protecting myself from the worst aspects of masculinity. So I think as a younger person, it was hard for me to understand the ways that masculinity hurt men too, uh, that toxic masculinity. Again, uh, not all masculinity is toxic. And um, when I say toxic masculinity, I'm literally referring to what sociologists term like the sort of ways that we socialize men that are around not asking for help, um, that are about taking unnecessary risks, that are about domination um, and, uh, you know, violent behaviors, things that actually put men more at risk for suicide and and various health risks and, um, of course, to hurt themselves and each other. I didn't understand any of that 
from where I was standing as a younger person and coming into my adulthood. So it was hard to feel empathy for behavior that, you know, with, without understanding the roots and understanding how it was harmful, you know, for the men involved, it just felt like all of those behaviors, the violence, risk-taking, um, not asking for help, it's hard to feel empathy for that when you don't get where it's coming from. You were also abused by your stepfather, right? Right, who so, definitely had toxic masculinity. Yeah, how yeah. much did that play into your feelings about men? a lot you know that he was my male role model so i also um as an adult had a near-death experience with a guy who um mugged me and uh before my transition and went on to um profile couples straight couples and then shoot the men in both cases so uh, i had another brush with violence at, you know at the hands of a man and so I think I associated being a man with being violent, but I don't think it's specific to my circumstances either. I think most people make that association. The book is a series of questions, and one of the questions I was most afraid to ask, I tried to ask every, quote, stupid question I had about masculinity, and the one I was most afraid to ask was, does testosterone make you aggressive or make you violent? Because I was Why really, were you afraid to ask that question? I was afraid the answer was yes. And I was, you know, I, I take test, testosterone. That's a big part of my transition. And so, you know, I was facing with this book my worst fears about my own masculinity. And so I asked that question and I talked to uh, the neuroscientist Robert Sapolsky from Stanford who lived with baboons for a year. He's very famous for his work. And uh, I asked him if testosterone makes you aggressive. And he said that's actually one of the biggest myths about testosterone. It doesn't make you aggressive. What it does make you is status seeking. And they've run economic games where um, the point of the game is in order to win, you have to cooperate. And the men with the highest testosterone in those games are the most cooperative. Um, but the men who are given a um, placebo and told it's testosterone are the most aggressive. So clearly our ideas about what testosterone is are way more defining of our relationship to it than our actual physical lived realities. So that, you know, that was relieving to me, but I also feel like that sort of holds the metaphor of the whole book. That said, how closely did you monitor your own behavior as a man when you started to take testosterone? Mm. I didn't even have to monitor it closely. It was just the changes I was experiencing were so um, visceral and vivid, and I mean that socially. I, obviously, my own internal changes were very visceral and vivid, but those were really positive for me. I felt really happy in my body, and I feel very happy being a man um, you know, when I'm alone by myself, I love the experience of being in my physical reality, but I would leave my house and my entire world changed very quickly, um, in terms of how people interacted with me. And that wasn't like something I had to like keep a notebook to understand. It was just really clear. Um, within... how did they interact with you differently? So there were sort of two different categories of that. Uh, one was the privileges I got, which were like very immediate. So within a few months, um, because my the way the hormone worked on me was so fast, within a few months, I, um, you know, I could, like at work, especially, I could stop whole meetings just by talking, which is something that never happened to me before. I was very used to being like interrupted and talked over and um, having a, a lower voice had a much bigger effect um, than before. Uh, I got promoted more quickly, I was taken more seriously. Um, when I would be by myself at night on the street, you know, women would cross the street um, to not be near me, which I completely understood. Uh, but it was like I became very quickly a lot safer in the world and also a potential threat to other people. Uh, and that was really alarming. Yeah. How did that make you feel? Terrible. But I also felt responsibility around all those things. Like, how do I 
what do I need to do to change my own behavior? Being really assertive at work, for example, wasn't um, always the best way to be with my female coworkers as as it was before. Fair so, to say you were questioning whether you yourself were becoming sexist? Yeah. I mean, it's a part one of the questions in the book. And, and of course I was. Like, I was being socialized and I live in the sexist culture just as we all do. I mean, a lot of what I tried to do with this book is challenge the idea that only good men, you know, or bad men struggle with these questions or whatever. Like that, that being a bad man means that you're sexist and being a good man means you're not. We're all sexist. Like a lot of women are sexist. We live in a culture where we internalize these messages. So it wasn't a question of if I was sexist, it was how and how can I change it? All of that is all like one aspect of what was different for me. And then the other side of it was like the ways that being a man um, put me in what sociologists call a man box. Like I felt really limited and restricted in my behavior. My mom died in 2014 and I began the book in 2015 and I was walking around all the time with like, you know, a lot of grief. I was in my early 30s and going through a major loss, but I didn't know how to express that grief in a way that was acceptable in this body. If I cried, it was a much different response than it had been before. But if I was angry, it was much more acceptable. But also, if I was angry, it was scarier. My like sort of range of movement emotionally felt much more limited. And I, that was also really disturbing to me. So it's it's sort of like I felt very clearly the privileges of being a man, but I also felt like the trade-offs were also really clear. How differently did men treat you at work compared to how women treated you at work when you transitioned? I don't think I got treated super differently by men and women, actually. But I think I got treated prior my transition to my transition very differently, if that makes sense. Like, I think men and women both treated me with more respect, took me more seriously, listened to me more. I think, if anything, maybe men were more likely to be aggressive with me um, after my transition versus before, where I think I was less of a threat. But prior to my transition with with women, I tended to, of course, like build coalitions and, and be part of you know, sort of, I fit within that world. So um, it was, a, I felt a more sense of like a collective um, at work. And then after my transition, I definitely felt more like, like I, I was just somebody who women were as wary of as, as any other guy in terms of just like the, the basics of like, how do I navigate work meetings? Am I being respectful? Am I talking over people? Like all of the same stuff that any man at work, I think is potentially doing to women without even realizing um, so in that sense, I think I had to become conscious of all of that. And, and I did, and I worked really hard to like, you know, once I realized that I was behaving in a way that was sexist at work, you know, it wasn't like I then thought, well, that's just how men are, which I, I feel like is the model of what men usually do or what we're supposed to do. I was really distressed by that. So I tried really hard to, to talk to the women around me, um, and ask them like, what, what can I do differently here? And ask for feedback. I was going to ask that question. You're married, right? Yeah. To a woman. Yeah. Now, what did she say about all of this when you talked with her about it? She has, from the beginning, been very much like, uh, you know, she's a great counsel in terms of all of this stuff. Um, but she, from the very beginning, you know, in a gentle way, let me know that she thought my relationship to masculinity was a bit of a romance. Um, and which was interesting because I didn't I didn't think that way. But I think when she said that, uh, you know, it makes a lot of sense. I'm trans. I, you know, always wanted to feel comfortable in my body and it makes sense that like this sort of encultured idea of what being a man means would be something I would idealize in some way but I think once I was living in it and um and she and I had met after I transitioned but early on in my transition I think that her highlighting of like what you know obviously she supported me and she you know 
is a great partner. Um, but I think her pushing me to like kind of question, well, what about this is real? And what about this is like something I'm not really willing to look at in a way that would be maybe helpful to everyone around me uh, was a big part of why I even wrote the book in the first place. I think she really was on to something really early on. Um, so I think at work was one place where that was really clear because she was, she's a few years younger than me and she was navigating sort of the, you know, an earlier part of her career when we first met and I was a little more mid-career and I could see the things she was up against versus me and the frustration she was having and the conversations we were having and it was clear that we were having very different experiences. That was something that she was really willing to, you know, kind of push me on and it was really helpful, you know, to, to have those intimate conversations every night after work about what was going on and why. My mom was somebody who was a like glass ceiling breaker. Like she was a physicist. Uh, she worked at General Electric. She was the only woman in the room almost always. Uh, so I grew up with a woman who was a really powerful role model in terms of like what women can do at work. And so as soon as I realized there was a discrepancy between I think what my values were about how I wanted to be and um, and the way I was behaving or what I was getting, like I really wanted to do something about it right away. Um, and I think lucky for me, because I didn't have a boyhood, it didn't feel so hard to ask for help uh, and to ask for feedback from the people around me. I know your mom is now passed on, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Was she alive when you transitioned? Yeah, she was. I got to name myself and I named myself after her brother. And she was very supportive. I, she was always really supportive of, of me gender-wise. And people often ask like, if, you know, if I have a male role model, and I say half-jokingly Rodan Farrow because I, I think he's fantastic. But really, I think my role model around gender was my mom because she she really modeled having, a, you know, even though as a, as a woman she was very comfortable in her female identity, I think she really modeled that, um, you know, gender roles are things that don't need to be – we can question the way that, that we're told that we have to be in the world. And so she always saw me as a, as a young kid when I was a tomboy or when I was a masculine – younger person, she never, you know, challenged that as like a problematic thing to be. She just figured, you know, that's who I was. Where did you grow up? In Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. How was that for a young individual mm. who was dealing with these issues as yeah. a child? I don't know. I don't know if it would be better to be anywhere else, you know, in a way. Like, I think I was lucky that my adolescence, like, coincided with the rise of the internet. So I was able to find like other younger people who are in the LGBTQ community really young. And even though it was a very sort of drastic version of the internet, it was still, you know, we could find each other on AOL, IM. It was sort of a, in a way, it was a much more innocent version, I think, you know. And then we met in real life. That was the sort of the way it worked back then in the 90s. Um, and so I was able to find people in Pittsburgh who were like me. And also I got a sense that there was a much broader world um, through that experience and I I often think about how lucky I am that like the need to find a broader world is what has allowed me to believe I belong to a broader world if that makes sense you know I don't know if I'd you know I, I, I came from a relatively small place and I might have felt like my, my not that there's anything wrong with having a life that's more contained but I feel like my life feels so much bigger because of that experience on the other hand uh, yeah it wasn't I don't know what it would be like to just grow up and have people be supportive and accepting in my, you know, in my world all the time. But I haven't had that experience as an adult either. So I guess I don't know. Uh, I don't know what that would be like in general. I think that would be a great world to live in. But that's not the world I grew up in. What would you say are among the biggest misconceptions that still surround trans people? So a lot of the work I do is thinking about media narratives of trans people, which is something 
I kind of got into, I fell into it. I literally began my transition in 2011. That was at the moment when trans visibility was at sort of its beginning of its rise. And it also was like at the, you know, right after um, the Great Recession of 2009 and when the masculinity crisis was actually simultaneously beginning to be a national and international conversation. So both of those topics are things I, I thought a lot about because I was working in media and thinking about them from my own standpoint and because I was experiencing my own relationship to those things. So I sort of have become someone who's really focused on both of those narratives and, and, and how they serve or don't serve the people involved. One thing very early on that really actually prevented me from my own transition was this idea of like being trapped in the wrong body, which I saw as sort of a translation for folks. Like generally early in my transition, I noticed that there was a lot of ways that people talked about trans people, um, as metaphors or as like, as if we were so complicated to understand and we needed to be like didactically reduced as much as possible to like the most, you know, simple sort of medical, uh, you know, description. Um, and I think that came from, you know, we live in a very patriarchal society where we're very rooted in the gender binary, even though you can look around you every day and see how much people are transgressing in all, you know, in all directions, that binary. So I think this concept that like trans people are these you know, very other, very different, you know, kind of people who are um, either like medically, um, you know, so uh, are so medically like in a in a problematic place that we need like this intervention. And it's like this sort of like that's sort of the more sympathetic story um, or that we're like something's wrong with us. I think those two narratives come from um, the the discomfort people have with the gender binary in general in themselves and then they project that discomfort out, outward you know it's actually pretty hard to fit into this binary <laughs> like most people aren't doing it well so i think this anxiety about trans people um if you really think about it deeply is coming from your your own discomfort uh, about gender and the expectations related to it and then we're examples of people who are like showing that it can be transgressed and what does that even mean then our whole culture is built on this binary um, so I, I don't know. I think the biggest mis misperception is that there's something radically different about trans people than anybody else. I, I think we're pretty boring, actually, <laughs> and we've existed through time and space. Um, but I think the fascination with us is actually an interesting cultural um, narrative that is worth thinking more deeply about. When you grow up with an abusive stepfather, mm -hmm. how cognizant are you to not be like that kind of man? Mm-hmm. You raise a question like that in the book when you talk about your brother mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's something he and I had in common. My brother and I was this fear of being like our father. And I think most sons of fathers who aren't so great really um, have a lot of anxiety about not wanting to be like that. Or, you know, maybe they don't, and that's its own problem. But I also think I've been thinking a lot lately about this idea of role models and, like, why we believe as a culture that specifically masculinity is something that needs to be sort of taught to you. Um, and that if you have a bad teacher, uh, that you therefore potentially will turn out like this bad teacher versus all the other potential people you could look at around you versus like your own internal sense of like right and wrong. Maybe you can expand an idea of what being a man means rather than just follow immediately in a footsteps or be reacting, you know, and being the opposite. Uh, this sort of idea that there are good and bad men, I think, is the fundamental root problem here. <laughs> like, of course, there are plenty of men in the spectrum of the middle, um, and most of us, most of the time, are in the middle, uh, and we're not morally on a good or bad side of things. But I think this sort of sense of having to uphold the good side actually creates so much um, 
confusion and chaos around uh, how do you do that, that you actually can can um, reject the parts of you that aren't being so good. And then you actually, ironically, end up acting worse. So uh, I had a lot of fears about that. And I think part of what wasn't working for me was trying to be not like my dad. Um, that that as a guiding mission wasn't a useful way of coming into my masculinity in my 30s. But what was useful was starting to like ask these really big questions that um, that were my own dissonances in my own sense of what was right or wrong on a moral level. Like, and so once I started like interrogating things from my own perspective, then I actually feel like I behaved more in line with, with the way I wanted to be. So of all sports, Thomas, why did you decide to box? Well, first of all, I think boxing's fascinating. As a writer, I, I think it has a long literary tradition from Joyce Carol Oates to Norman Mailer. Uh, and also as an uh, as a American, I think that th- there's a really interesting way that boxing has played a big role in our cultural um, narratives of you know who we are, for better and for worse. But the real reason that like I specifically got involved in boxing to write this book was uh, guys kept trying to fight me. There's no other like way to say it. In 2015, I had a whole summer where I just kept getting into these, you know, potential street fights, and it was really strange. In retrospect, I was grieving and I was angry, and you know, I think that when you have that energy, you kind of give it off. And I got into like multiple potential fights, and then the last one was like this guy near my apartment, and I really felt like. There was this moment, and it was like a crossroads where I really thought I was going to hit him. And I felt like what was happening to me. And to me, it felt like a much bigger crossroads. This was many years after I'd been thinking about all this stuff, and and I didn't have a good solution. I didn't know what to do, and I was sort of at my lowest point with it. Like, how do I be the kind of man I want to be in the world? I feel like I I felt at that point like I was just being formed by the culture around me without really any consent. Uh, So to me, it was like I either need to – figure out a new way. Um, or I don't know, I, I had to figure out a new way. There was really actually no other option. And so the question that occurred to me right after this guy and I almost had this huge fight was why do men fight in the first place? And it felt like a really dumb question that I should know the answer to. But because of that, I actually thought it was worth asking. So I pitched a story to courts where I worked at the time um, as an editor and they you know, they were into it. And so I got involved with this charity fighting outfit and ended up um, learning how to fight uh, as a as a means of asking that question. And all along the way reported out the bigger questions I had about masculinity and violence. Yeah. So what did you learn about masculinity? What did you learn about yourself by getting into the ring? Yeah. I was very surprised by my experience boxing. Um, I mean, I had a very intellectual interest in it. I, I'm not... I'm not not athletic, but I'm not particularly athletic. I am sort of a middle of the road kind of person in that way. And, and I was really interested in, in charity fights specifically because it's, you know, to me, that intersection of race and class, um, around this sport was really fascinating to think about. So I was surrounded by all these like venture capitalists and investment bankers, um, who were risking their bodies and they really didn't need to. Most of them were white. And a lot of the trainers were men of color. So then I like thinking about like and trying to fit myself into that was actually really useful because I got to see very clearly the way I'm a white guy um, and seeing the way my whiteness and that class and class sort of informed the way my masculinity was was formed was actually something I, I hadn't I understood, you know, academically, but I was really able to see in the context of this boxing gym. I learned a lot about um men's relationships with each other and male intimacy in a way that was actually very sweet. Uh, I didn't realize that boxing is such a communal sport because it feels so individual, but 
to train to fight, you have to work with other people. And most of my experience training was learning about myself through these other guys. And because the way boxing works, you know, you're, you very early on have to spot your vulnerabilities. And the point isn't to cover them up, but to actually turn them into strengths. So very early on, I was working with men who I was in this kind of like incredibly intimate relationship with around sparring because they were pointing out to me like here are here's where you're most vulnerable and here's how you can use it positively or like sort of being on that journey with me to learn how to turn those vulnerabilities into strengths i also learned that a lot of the socialization i'd had that i was um trying to i think in many ways stay in touch with like my empathy and my compassion and my tenderness that uh that actually that could be really positive even in the boxing ring, you know, um, in, in the sense that in that training and the way I had to work with other men and that kind of communication. Um, but I also learned that like aggression, which I'd sort I gendered, uh, I think as we all do, didn't have to have a gender. So, you know, I learned how to be more aggressive, but in a very controlled consensual environment, which I think on some level, that's what I needed to learn but in a way that was detached from, you know, a kind of predatory violence. Um, so I don't know. Those are just a few lessons. How hard was it to throw those first punches really? to hit somebody else? Yeah, it was really hard. It wasn't, um, it really wasn't fun for me in the beginning to, to hit anyone because it wasn't, you know, I knew obviously that I was signing up for it, but it really felt like why would I hurt somebody who never done anything to me? Um, but getting comfortable with it, involved understanding that that it was a consensual experience and that actually um there was a lot of value in learning how to what my my coach used to he would call it coming forward but learning how to come forward in that way there was a real value in that and um and i would hit people and they would hit me and we would you know be enthusiastically positive towards each other to almost like reinforce the notion that it's okay like this is what we're signing up for and um and in a way it was the most probably affectionate space i've been in ever in my life like it was just a you know there was physical violence but there was also a lot of like physical camaraderie and um i think as a way of affirming that like nobody's mad here you know so so even though it was painful in the beginning not to get hit. I actually was a goalie uh, all through high school, so I didn't mind getting hit in the face. But it was more learning to hit other people and realizing that um, that there could be a place for violence if if it's a consensual place was a real revelation to me. You didn't tell your coach that you were trans. Your coach mm-hmm. found out on mm-hmm. his own. How mm-hmm. come you didn't tell him? It was interesting because I've not, um, I've never been a person, you know, since I transitioned seven years ago I've never been someone who hasn't been open about that and anybody can google me and find that out very quickly um but I envisioned this experience as one where I would not have this like being trans being a mediating factor I didn't want anything to be um interfering with my sense of like how I was being treated and why and so to me that just felt like one more factor and variable to like add on to uh to that experience so and I was also, you know, f- to be honest, like nervous about my safety. I didn't know like who would be in the gym, you know. I mean, it's a very it's a very small community of people that you're working with and it's like I was literally training 5 hours a night, you know, for 5 months, 6 days a week. So it was a lot of time spent with people who I didn't know how they would react to that. So it was it was a combination of both of those things, but but ultimately honestly, I I think it was much more about um yeah, wanting to like limit my own questions about how I was being received um, and really trying to like see like how I would 
how I would sort of echolocate myself without that as like an element of how people re- received me. Your charity boxing match took place at Madison Square Garden. Yeah. In doing that match, you became the first trans man to ever box in Madison Square Garden. Yeah, it's wild, right? <laughs> <laughs> you didn't know that going in, though, did no, you? No, it's not even something that was on my radar of things I was thinking about. Like Because, you know, um, to me this was such a... It was a personal journey, and it was also su- t- such a geopolitical journey because, again, I was thinking about things from the you know, from the place of having reported on the masculinity crisis very broadly. And I was thinking about my own very individual experience. So the idea of like the sports history element of it was not something on the, on the top of my mind, but at some point along the way, I realized that. And it was a, it was a crazy thing to, to realize. The one thing that I try to say and all, you know, as often as possible is that like for me, and, and I appreciate this interview because I feel like you've, you approached it with a lot of sensitivity, but I think the idea that we all have a gender is something that we're still getting used to thinking about. And so it's something that like, in writing this book, I really wanted to highlight through my experience that this is actually the universal experience of, of, or for white men anyway, of becoming a man in this country. And these things that I had to deal with and face were really things that, um, that most men have to deal with and face and, and for better and for worse. And I think when we're having a conversation about men in America, you know, white men in America in particular, it's really easy to, to, depending on where you are in the sort of framework to be angry or to be like, you know, you don't even want to think about it or to like sort of say like either I'm not that kind of guy or that's just how guys are or whatever. And I, and I really, I hope that if you read the book, the way that you feel is that actually there's something about the way we're socializing boys. That's really the conversation that we want, we should be having if we want to change things. And any man who was ever a boy needs to think about their own gender identity and, um, and anybody who has boys and anybody who, you know, is coming into a masculinity at all like these are these are things that are happening and they're beyond our control but once we shed a light on them they are within our control again and that's the point of of why i wrote this book thomas thanks so much for coming in thanks for having me thomas page mcbee is the author of amateur a true story about what makes a man and that's it for this week's cityscape my thanks to producer caroline rotante i'm george boldarki thank you so much for listening